Kaptagon basically reached Syria during the war and run mostly by the Assad family, which had always stayed in Latakia. You had a thriving drug smuggling business there. They recognized if we produce Kaptagon here, which is in high demand by various militias who use it to give their fighters the feeling of impunity. Welcome to Babel, translating the Middle East a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. Syria's readmission to the Arab League last month may have been part of Arab government's efforts to crack down on drug smuggling. Syria is the region's principal producer of Captagon, an addictive amphetamine that's swamping the Middle East. The Syrian government is deeply involved in its manufacture and distribution. To help us understand the role of criminal networks in Syria's war economy, I speak with Christoph Reuter, an award-winning journalist with Der Spiegel magazine. He's been reporting from the Middle East for more than 20 years, and he's spent much of the last decade covering the conflict in Syria. Later, I continue the conversation with my colleagues Natasha Hall and Lubna Youssef, and we explore the intersections between criminal networks and war zones. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Christoph, welcome to Babel. Thank you. You've spent years in war zones in Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, and most recently Ukraine. Have you ever been in a war zone where there wasn't smuggling and organized crime? Well, for Ukraine, there is less of smuggling and less of organized crime, but it's also a more clear-cut conflict. One country invades another country, while Iraq, Syria, Yemen were much more complicated theater of conflict, a civil war, a dictator fighting against its own population, warlords emerging in specific areas, basing their power on the loyalty of their ethnic or confessional group, which all facilitates smuggling and organized crime. Was there something about insurgencies that lend themselves to organized crime or something about organized crime that tries to insert itself into insurgencies as people look for funding? It depends on the different starting point. What initiates a specific conflict? In the Zahel area, for example, you have well-established smuggling networks who try to take the cover of we are now Islamic State of the Maghreb or we are Al-Qaeda, although they have already started as a smuggling network. While in Syria, you had rebels who were desperately looking for funding and then started smuggling oil, smuggling gasoline, most recently even getting involved in the Kaptagon smuggling, this amphetamine drug which is produced in regime-held Syria. So it's important that you have a certain degree of lawlessness, which from a humanitarian point of view can be better than a dictatorship like in Syria, whose main target is to kill as many people as possible who are revolting against it. And then various interests, looking for funding to run a military group, like in the case of Ahrar Sham in Syria, to run a social network. 
to run the replica of a state within the civil war, while in other areas it's much more business orientated. What was ISIS's role in organized crime? Was there any group that ISIS wouldn't work with as it was trying to build financial support for its caliphate? On the glimpse, you would think Islamic State, IS, had clear ideological rules and guidelines, for example, banning the smoking of cigarettes, which they imposed very harshly. You would think they are not involved in the smuggling of cigarettes. And then it turned out that they had used the ban of cigarette smoking and smuggling to monopolize the business with cigarettes for dues who simply can't give up smoking and are willing to pay the equivalent of three euros for a packet, which sounds little for us, but was 10 times more than it cost before. And it was ISIS who brought in Armenian cigarettes from the company of Achtama, from the most Christian country I could imagine, because they were the cheapest they could get from Turkish smugglers. At the end, ISIS was involved in basically any kind of smuggling, be it gasoline, fuel, cigarettes, whatever would generate money. Were they involved in drug smuggling as well? They were not involved in the production and the export of Captagon. They were involved in purchasing Captagon, mostly to use it for their own fighters. There was no lucrative smuggling route ISIS could use to get Captagon from the regime area to smuggle it to somewhere else in Iraq. This was mostly a wrong allegation made by Guardia di Finanza in Italy when they confiscated the one billion load of Captagon in Salerno. Now, ISIS, when it comes to Captagon, was involved in consumption and purchasing. We have numerous accounts of how they used it for fighters, how they used it to make their fighters more enthusiastic. But the smuggling was done by people from the regime. We've talked about Captagon. Captagon is an amphetamine. How did it become a major item for trade in the Middle East? It started with German chemists developing the predecessor of Captagon in the 1940s, 1960s, Captagon was a German brand name. And then it was produced with a slightly different formula in Bulgaria, in the Eastern Bloc. And then Bulgarian chemists traveled to Lebanon and cooperated with Hezbollah, a pattern we have also in some other areas of military equipment, Bulgaria and Hezbollah got along pretty well with each other. So Hezbollah in Lebanon started again with a slightly different formula to produce this amphetamine, which they labeled Captagon because it was an introduced brand name. From Lebanon, it moved into Syria in 2012-13, because A, it's better if you have a completely lawless area, and Lebanon is to a high degree lawless, but not as lawless as Syria was during the war, and you had an established pharmaceutical industry in Syria, which knew how to get the basic chemical substances, mostly imported from China, from India, to have them shipped then to Beirut or to Latakia as well, So Captagon basically reached Syria during the war and 
run mostly by the Assad family, which had always stayed in Latakia. You had a thriving drug smuggling business there. They recognized if we produce Captagon here, which is in high demand by various militias who use it to give their fighters the feeling of impunity, and which is also in high demand in the rich Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates, where the youngsters like it because they like the kick and it keeps you awake, which is a good thing for Saudi Arabia, where you normally go out on a week and at night because daytime it's by far too hot. So normally all the shisha bars, the driving circus, all this happens at night. It turned out to be the perfect drug for rich kids in Saudi and elsewhere who would be willing to pay the equivalent of $10 per pill, which has production costs of maybe 30 cents, 40 cents, 50 cents maximum. And this is how it began big time about seven, eight years ago. How big is the Captagon trade now, as far as you can tell? Several billion dollars. To have an idea of the overall amount is impossible because we have not managed fully to track the shipments of the basic chemicals. The Syrian regime blatantly denies any involvement in it, although we could track some of the camouflaging, some of the packing back to family members of Bashar al-Assad. Starting in 2015-16, you had big seizures on ships which were used to bring a large amount of captagon in the, the amount of tons to European ports and have it reshipped afterwards, branded as European goods, because any ship that comes straight from Syria to any port in Saudi Arabia would be torn to pieces, would be checked thoroughly, while any ship coming from European port, allegedly transporting machinery or regular goods would be superficially checked. But there were so many seizures of these shipments. And according to sources we have in Jordan, the Syrian smugglers have shifted away from the big amounts on ships to mule smuggling that people are trying to cross the Jordanian or Iraqi border with smaller amounts. And that's even more difficult to detect. So are most of the end users in the Middle East, although the smuggling networks go through Europe, or is most of the in intended use within the Middle East itself? This giant detour to ship it to Europe is all intended to cover up the real origin. There were container ships where the logistic managers, logistic officials of the smuggling networks had booked the passage of a container from Tartus, or mostly from Latakia to Salerno, to Port Said, to Athens. Then the container would be unloaded in the Freeport. Then there was another booking that the container would be sent, for example, from Salerno to Athens. And then from Athens, the container should be sent to Saudi Arabia to confuse its real origin which clearly shows that European ports were only meant as a transit port. Do you think there's an intentional decision not to try to trade with Europe for fear that if you were trading into Europe, then the Europeans would come down hard on the producers? 
And the second question is, are there Europeans involved in this or is this overseas Syrian networks managing everything? There was one interesting court case here in Germany where for the first time, the high-ranking logistic guys were brought to court because they were Syrians who had worked for years in the port of Latakia and had come to Germany with the big wave of refugees in 2015-16. The people who organized the smuggling are Syrians inside Syria or exiled Syrians like the ones living in Germany and others were living in Romania and to a smaller degree Lebanese, Hezbollah, or smugglers who are close to Hezbollah, but it's not getting into the European sphere. Even in Salerno, the one shipment was tipped off by Camorra people to the police because they had the impression someone else is in our pond here and is endangering our business. And for the other question, Syrian producers are not focusing on the European consumer market, simply because the European market is full, is provided with all kinds of amphetamine, of cocaine, of all kinds of drugs. And it would be difficult to get a share within this market with a product which would not be in such a high demand here. If you like amphetamine, you have a whole variety of different amphetamines. If you want to dance all night or if you need enhancers for specific purposes, others take cocaine. But the specific effect of Captagon would not meet a very hungry audience. It wouldn't make sense to take this effort to get a market within Europe if you have the perfect market, either in the Middle East or in Africa, where a lot of militias are provided through smuggling routes from Libya. You've described this as a multi-billion dollar business. Do you think there's anything that could make the Syrian government get out of the illegal drug business? Yeah, to bring down this government. Holding the card of Captagon production and smuggling they can exert a lot of pressure on the House of Saud, on Saudi Arabia, on the Jordanians. So they are getting something in exchange for promising to stop the trade, while at the same time claiming that they have nothing to do with the trade. So they can benefit from the trade, and there is not much else Syria can export these days. And the profits, because the oil or the gas of Syria is mostly in the hand of the Kurds, or you have Russian or Iranian companies who sit on it. Captacon is purely Syrian profits. So I don't see any reason why they should stop this and at the same time, they can use it as a bargaining chip with the neighboring countries with a plausible deniability that although they have promised to stop it, they couldn't stop it completely. You've described the Assad family's direct involvement in the Captagon trade. Are there other ways the Assad family is profiting from the war economy in Syria? We haven't tracked it down to the family itself, but of course it was the inner circle, the security apparatus who benefited enormously from this extremely cynical trait of asking the relatives of 
people who have disappeared. And we talk about more than 100,000 people who disappeared in 2012, 13, 14 and onwards. And then suddenly you get a call. Somebody says, Abu Flan Flan is in this and this prison. And if you pay me $3,000, I make sure he won't get killed. If you pay me $5,000, I might try to get a sign of life from him. And sometimes it works. People got even released by bribing security people. But very often the money just disappeared and completely desperate family members would sell everything to secure the survival of their loved ones. This business has mostly dried up because people have given up. But this was one of the main businesses people within the inner circle grew obscenely rich with. You've been going back and forth to Syria for many years. Do you think the war has changed the Assads, or do you think it's merely revealed more starkly who the Assads are? It was a wake-up call for Bashar al-Assad, who grew up in the atmosphere that governing, running, looting, owning Syria is for granted for them. The first weeks, months, according to people we talked to, he was utterly surprised about the sudden resistance against the rule of a few clans and the 10% minority over the rest of the country. And over the course of the war, the paranoia of the Assads and the Alawite inner circle of power has reached new levels that they would do anything not to give up the power, not to show any crack it was a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. By now, Assad, the whole family, many parts of Sunni, Syria, the Alawites in general, are so much hated for the cruelty which Assad's troops, the security forces have committed, that the fear in a way is justified. If they give up power, they would not be the well-established elder statesmen, but they would have to go back to their mountains and would be despised and hated by large parts of the Syrian population for another generation and would never come back to power. In a way, it has shown the nature of any regime which tries to base its power on the poorest 10% minority of the population, which always creates the conflict that they have to take extreme measures to preserve the power. You've described how Ukraine is a different kind of war because it's not about a small minority fighting to maintain its rule over a country. It's not an insurgency. Obviously, there's Western support. But are there other lessons that you think the West should have learned from the conflict in Syria that it can apply to prosecuting the conflict in Ukraine? <laughs> Retrospectively, yeah, it's one lesson that to grant the Russian government the experience of we send in our forces and we take the country. It's ours, basically. We decide the fate of Bashar al-Assad, the fate of Syria, which to a large extent they do, probably gave them assurances that this experience could be replicated and repeated in Ukraine. It was misleading for them, and it was a mistake to let Syria bleed. It was a mistake not to bring down Assad's regime, because this would have been the only way to a new start. 
By now, what we have is an unsolved conflict, in a way frozen, but the reasons of the conflict have even been amplified. Only the fear of the dictator is bigger than the misery of people, but nothing has been solved. It shows us that if you encourage people that they can take what they want by force, they will not do it once, they will do it again, as Putin did with Ukraine. So going back provides us the lesson that we should have acted more proactively in the case of Syria than let it go down. Christoph Reuter, correspondent for Der Spiegel, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you. One of the things that stood out to me while Christoph was talking was just how diverse and how far the network for trading in Captagon goes. He mentioned how expats from Syria who are residing in countries such as Germany are involved. And I wonder if you had anything to say about how these external parts of the network influence the flow, development and growth of what's going on in the networks inside Syria. One of the Syrian regime's greatest allies is Lebanese Hezbollah. And Hezbollah has a long track record and a global network for drugs and arms throughout the world. It initially was able to start on fairly firm footing through Hezbollah. But a lot of the extortion that you saw amongst the Syrian regime, but also amongst rebel groups, started internal, started by trying to smuggle in goods and things that they could not acquire through other means. Necessity is the mother of all invention, right? As you saw these power vacuums emerge and governance structures emerge in those vacuums, you also needed something to subsume the vacuum in trade and outwards trade. Because when you have protracted conflicts, it's not like the trade disappears. It's not like the need for goods and services disappears. All of that remains. And it ends up being in more conflict-affected countries like Syria or Libya, that it is the people with the guns, the people with the existing connections that are able to capitalize the most. But it seems to me that most fundamentally what makes networks work is trust. And if you have trust, you can do a lot. And part of the nature of criminal organizations, part of the nature of terrorist organizations is they have to trust people because there aren't a lot of rules other than this is the rule of the organization. And it seems to me that what these organizations that have developed trust in one way have done is they've then taken that trust and they've used it to create a genuine trusting network that has global reach that can violate international laws, they can violate the sovereign laws of countries. And it's all based on having people you know, not counting on any enforcement mechanism other than the network itself. And this is a really powerful way to reach around the world. We often look at insurgencies in conflict areas as destabilizers, but how do they also co-opt the communities in their areas of control? Well, they have networks of trust because they're not working from law. They work from trust and they get people to trust them. They provide things, they provide services, they provide courts that can enforce their law. There's a way when there's utter chaos that any kind of order is welcome. And certainly the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt got a lot of its initial popular support before it was elected 
by a sense that they ran medical clinics that worked. And so using these networks of trust to do things creates broader relationships of trust that ultimately helps these groups expand their networks. Globally, we've seen more protracted conflicts than ever before. The number of active conflicts has nearly doubled in the world. There's not just time for vacuums to emerge. There's a lot of time for fully quasi-states to emerge by necessity. Water, trash, electricity, internet, food. The need for these essentials doesn't go away with war, and it certainly doesn't go away with wars that drag on for years. You see in these rebel-held areas, these rebels begin to build in governance structures, oftentimes civilian governance structures, and sometimes they work in parallel or in coordination or at odds. But eventually power consolidates over time. I was able to see this in Syria as time went on. And one way to consolidate power is through governance and the provision or co-option of services. But during war, this isn't so easy. It's the guys with the guns and the connections that can make this possible. You think about the guy who's in prison, who's able to smuggle in goodies for the rest of the prisoners, he makes himself essential. But if you expand that analogy to an entire community or group of communities, after months and years of commanding these networks through checkpoints, seizing loot and territory, these rebels can start to shift to collecting taxes, quote unquote, or setting prices for basic commodities, things that look like governance. And this is essentially what we had happen in Syria. The issue is that in a post-war environment, these services tend to continue to be divided along these wartime lines. And that's what we've seen in places like Lebanon, especially. I would say that from what I've seen in Libya, rebel becomes such an umbrella term. The people who label themselves as rebels as time goes by start to include previous prisoners and people who are already in the drug trade because it gives them respectability and it gives them trust, at least at the beginning, until people begin to realize that, hey, they actually never contributed to the revolution. They actually were never a part of any civil movement. I've seen it specifically in a city called Zawiya, where one of the kingpins there who controls the entire city is very famous and active in migrant smuggling and human trafficking. And he generates so much revenue off of it. And in another city called Sabrata. But the way the community continues to stay silent is that he has offered employment opportunities for their sons, for their youth. And he's telling them, you know, this is how I'm helping you support your families when otherwise the government or governments, in the case of Libya, has completely abandoned you because they don't understand you. They're holding on to their seats of power and they are not a part of the street like I am. I know who you are and I know what you need. And you hear people speak of this person with, fear, but also with a hint of respect and admiration, because he's the only person who cared about them over the last 10 years. And this is how warlords get power, and often how warlords maintain power, is they transition from being old-style warlords to government officials. And certainly in Lebanon, Lebanese politics have never completely escaped the Lebanese civil war, which ended almost a quarter century ago. Are there any other contexts that we can compare what's happening in Syria in terms of illicit drug trades in other parts that are ridden by conflict in the Middle East? It feels to me like Syria is actually integrated with the world. It's been at the crossroads of trade. You have a country like Yemen, there's just less going on because there's less commercial activity. But it feels to me like Syria 
has historic connections to Lebanon. There's long trade routes into Jordan. There are things that go into Turkey. There's a way that, that Syria is hard to isolate from the countries around it and the world, which I think has helped the Syrian captagon trade. Syria is not traditionally a totally impoverished place, and that also gives it a little more integration and a more global network might otherwise have. I would compare it more to Latin America and the drug war there. And the reason for that is we're talking about insurgencies, but really the people that control the captagon trade is the Syrian regime, as Christoph Reuter was mentioning. And there's been a recent report that really digs down into the division of the intelligence apparatus that has control over certain networks of drug smugglers in southern Syria. This is a structural issue, but it's not something that we haven't seen before. And it's a situation where the state can also exude plausible deniability, which is helpful for the Assad regime. You can narc on one person or one shipment, but keep the whole apparatus going indefinitely. And that's what happened in Latin America. It was the very same governments that the U.S. was working with during the drug wars that were profiting from the drug trade and the war against drugs. And when you have a situation like that, it's really difficult to get out of. Lastly, Christoph made this very clear distinction between how insurgencies generate funds. Sometimes it can involve setting up fake charities, intercepting international aid, having their own networks of illicit drug trades and migrant smuggling and human trafficking, versus how conflicts such as what's happening in Ukraine are generating it. Most of it is generated state aid. What do you think the responsibilities that outside actors have in ensuring that their resources are not used to support ruthless acts. What you're referring to is humanitarian or development aid. We have this notion that this kind of assistance by its own virtue can remain untarnished in the most hellish landscapes. But as the international aid apparatus has grown exponentially, especially in the past 30-some years, we're beginning to see the folly with that. It's rough because it's like excoriating sunshine and rainbows in the midst of a devastating storm. As conflicts and the crises that they breed grow longer and more numerous, this issue of nefarious actors diverting aid or extending conflicts, it'll get more and more attention. And oftentimes, because of just the sheer number of crises and conflicts, we tend to lead with humanitarian diplomacy or diplomacy for humanitarian access rather than using a range of foreign policy tools to really end conflicts. Warring parties are learning that dependence a lot faster than traditional donor states and taking full advantage of that. In recent months, we've seen reports of Iranians shipping in arms on what is meant to be humanitarian aid shipments. And so that's just one example, but, but there's clearly many. The other aspect of Ukraine is that Ukraine's reputation is for being a place with its own endemic level of corruption. I think the amount of foreign assistance has taken attention from that issue. But when we get to a point of post-conflict reconstruction in Ukraine, there's going to be a problem of how do you deal with corruption? You don't have all the insurgencies, so you don't have multiple sources, but you have a problem. You have a Ukrainian government that traditionally has not been able to stamp out its own corruption. I think the international community may not be dealing with ISIS-level armed warlords who are trying to control things, but you do have a government that has a deep corruption problem 
that is suddenly going to be getting billions of dollars of assistance and how the international community deals with a government with its own set of corruption issues is going to be a challenge that it's not time to look at that challenge now, but that challenge is coming. John, Natasha, thank you so much for your time today. Libna, great to see you again. Thanks, Libna. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.